Yo, what is going on, baby? Nathan Kennedy, the new money podcast, episode 79. How y'all doing, man? Thank you so much for tuning in again. As usual, my friends, ask me any questions y'all got on Instagram, as well as if you're listening on Apple Podcast. I would love if you could leave a review. Now, guys, I think you know what I'm about to say next. But you know I'm always talking about investing in yourselves and in your future. And we here at the New Money Podcast are big, big fans of the stock market. But I can sit here all day and talk about how great the stock market is. But at the end of the day, if you're not out actually investing, it's kind of all for nothing. So that's why I think Wealth Simple Trade and Wealth Simple Invest would be great ways to just get that started for you. Wealth Simple Trade is a commission-free platform where you can buy stocks and ETFs, simple, straightforward, and easy. Wealth Simple Invest is a robo-advisor where they do all the work for you. You just got to put the money in. So guys, check out the show notes for links to either one. I highly, highly recommend it. So today, I actually had the chance to interview an old professor of mine. This is actually the second professor I've interviewed on the podcast, Bonnie Simpson. She's a professor at the University of Western Ontario, which is where I used to go. She has her PhD in marketing and she is really friggin' smart. And we talk about a ton of consumer based stuff that is not only going to teach you a shit ton, but it's going to make you a much better shopper. And if you're running a business, a much better business person. So guys, tons and tons of value was so honored and happy to sit down with Bonnie and go through this interview. So sit back, relax. And I promise you guys, you're probably going to learn something because I think I learned like a million things. So you'll probably take at least one thing away from it, kick it into cruise control, and let's just dive on into it, baby. Bonnie, how's it going? Fantastic. How are you? I'm amazing. I'm amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Happy to try to give people some insights. Yeah, guys, Bonnie uh, actually taught me in university um, and uh, what uh, I, about consumer behavior and, and market research and uh, a lot of uh, awesome stuff that we've talked about on the show. Um, so we're going to get into a lot of that. But really quick, Bonnie, just just give me a quick, you know, Cole's notes on, on your life and uh, what, what kind of how you kind of found yourself into the um, uh, researching aspect of uh, consumer behavior. So. I never wanted to be a researcher. I didn't actually know it was a job, never crossed my radar as a job. I had two entrepreneurial parents, very winding career paths, and they chose, uh, they, they encouraged me to choose the path that was most fun. So as an example, I applied to programs in accounting and sport management when I went into my undergrad and my mom was like, sport management sounds like a lot more fun. And she was right. It did sound like a lot more fun. I think I would have made a good accountant, but, um, but that was just sort of the choice structure in my family and, and the choice structure that I've been used to in life. So I always just kind of take things to um, which choice is going to leave more doors open. And that's what led me eventually to um, discovering research. And it was really about finding a match between my skills and a job. Uh, There are things that I'm good at that research entails. And I think rather than seeking out a career, it was kind of more about finding what I was good at and then finding something that that matched those skills. So research became sort of a path that I realized as I continued through more school. And then the path towards consumer behavior was really, I was working for a few ski resorts, things like that at the time. And I got interested in sort of obviously the business side of, okay, well, how do we get more people skiing? But that also became a sort of personally driven, 
well, if people skied, they would love winter, you know, just thinking how, how do I get other people to enjoy the things that I love? And so it started from there. And as I sort of deepened through my understanding of theory and my understanding of how we can take something from skiing and we can apply it to all kinds of other contexts, for instance, it became more about why people would take up a behavior, what might prevent them from taking up a behavior and broaden to a lot of other areas beyond the sort of skiing context that I was working in at the time. So that's the gist of it. <laughs> so so what made you want to, so you, you, you got sort of interested in it. What made you want to like be like, okay, like I actually want to just solely kind of focus on this? Um, nothing. Again, I would say the sort of winding career path and taking what sort of comes your way. So when I finished my PhD, I was open to a lot of different options and I'm a really goal oriented person. And it was kind of always like, well, I'll try this. You know, the goal, you know, you finish a PhD, the goal is to get a tenure track job somewhere and, and, and build a life with research. I'll try it. If I don't like it, you know, I don't have to do it, but I don't mm-hmm. ever want to look back at something and say, I wish I'd tried it. And so right. I tried it and it turns out, um, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at it and I enjoy it. And it gives me a lot of fantastic things in life. It gives me uh, the opportunity to meet people like yourself, meet a lot of mm-hmm. really interesting people through teaching and um, have wonderful colleagues, have great flexibility in my life. There's so many great things about an academic career that, again, I you know never considered it as a job. So um, honestly, it was a it was a matter of falling into it as opposed to choosing it. <laughs> Right on, right on. You know, I I was actually talking about this in a, in another podcast. On, um, it's been a, it's been a theme that's come up in a few actually w- with respect to passion and and doing what you love versus what you're good at. And you know, there's been a lot of um, uh, content that I've been seeing that's sort of talking about you know, um, there's this book called So Good They Can't Ignore You by uh, Cal Newport, and uh, he talks about um, you know, building career capital and actually you know, doing what you're good at and doing the things that you have the skills in. And because you're so good at what you do, it actually creates things around your life. Like you're saying that, that make you passionate about that very thing. And I think it's a, it's a very um, interesting way to think. I think it's a hard sell for people my age to think about it like that, because you, you, you don't, you haven't like actually like um, gotten there yet. So you, you haven't experienced the, that specific thing. So I think it's, very contentious subject, but uh, I, I love to, to always hear that aspect. I think you, we, all of us have been socially conditioned towards what's your career. Um, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you grow up? Start asking people that when they're yeah. three, four years old. Uh, why you would ever do just one thing is bananas. I mean, why would you? You've got a whole life, <laughs> you know, make the most of it. And with whatever skill set you're going to build, it's going to be applicable to different areas and, and to different things. And you're going to want new challenges. And, and I think that it's absolutely the case that when you find what you're good at, which takes time, absolutely, you've got to build those skills. Um, but when you do, you then will be intrinsically rewarded by those things. Even if you think, I don't love this job, you know, for my instance, in my job, I have one of my, my best friends, that we, she works in the same field I do. And we often have talked about the part that's missing in our lives is sometimes feeling like we're not having a big enough impact on making the world a better place. And that's something that I, I consciously struggle with. Um, but 
then you'll have people in your life that say, well, you know, you don't have to fulfill every single need in your life with your job. You know, there's a life outside a job if you're lucky. Um, if you structure it that way. Right. And so there's opportunities for other impact. And so I think those sort of things of, you know, recognizing your skill set takes time and, and following the paths, you know, as they, as they approach and as you, you know, are given Mm. opportunities is kind of, I agree. It's a hard sell. My, (laughs) my, my sister and I talk often about this uh, quarter century crisis that we experienced when we were 25. Um, Oh man, I'm 25. I still don't know what I want to do with my life. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm like, yeah. yeah, that's the quarter century crisis. Everybody goes through that. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, you know, you, you gotta be cognizant of, uh, you know, I, I, I like to think, man, I'm, I'm pretty young, like grand scheme, like I'm, I'm pretty young and, and anybody in their twenties really has got their whole life ahead of them. You don't have to have it figured out. You could, you know, literally, try a bunch of things for the next decade and you'll still be okay. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, but that being said, there's also, you know, you, you do want to, to be more targeted at a certain point. So it, it's one of those, it's like the dichotomy kind of thing of it, but you know, with, with your job, how have you, like, what have been your biggest findings? Like what are, what are some of the biggest breakthroughs? I, I guess if you want to call them uh, around consumer research or, or whatever, um, um, aspect it is. It's interesting because I always think of, um, you know, science breakthroughs. We're talking about things like COVID vaccines. And then we, you know, we switch over to consumer behavior. And yeah. obviously, um, a lot of the things won't immediately seem to have the same aspect or the same sort of influence on people's lives. Um, and yet they do. They're things that we, you know, play out every single day in our life everywhere. And that's what I find so interesting is, is the inspiration that you can take from the way you're acting in any given scenario and being like, why did I do that? Yeah. So a lot of my research is around what we would call the self-concept. So the idea of how we view ourselves and how we might view ourselves differently in different scenarios and how we might view ourselves differently depending on uh, who we're with or what situation we're in or all kinds of different purchase scenarios. Like if we're in public or if we're in private, if we're buying for someone else or for ourselves. And so a lot of my research is around how we view ourselves. And so that's where most of what I would say are the more interesting things that I've um, found in my work have come from. One that I just did that I'm really, uh, I'm really proud of because I think it's, uh, it's fascinating is um, simply the way that we engage in a transaction can shape what we buy. So I was comparing uh, crowdfunding to purchasing. So looking at if, it, you know, take the same product, you take a pair of sunglasses, for instance, and it's literally the exact same product. But in one instance, it's being offered as a reward-based crowdfunding. So you pay 20 bucks and you get the sunglasses, probably more like 90 bucks, let's say sunglasses. Yeah. Or if you were just to go to an online store and you just bought the sunglasses for 90 bucks, exact same sunglasses, um, we're actually more likely to pay more for those in a crowdfunding context. And if we compare, you know, a product that has um, some sort of social good aspect, that's where it comes up. And so it's this idea that if we've got just regular pair of sunglasses, that's not going to show up. But if we have something that's like an environmentally friendly product or it's got some sort of social good associated with it, then we're going to pay more for it. And in fact, we're going to choose it more over a more traditionally made product. And so we were trying to figure out, okay, well, why is this? And what we found through a lot of studies um, is that crowdfunding 
intuitively activates a sort of collective mindset. But the downfall of that collective mindset is thinking more about social good and so being more drawn to those products. But the underlying premise of that research that I think is so cool is that simply the type of transaction that we're engaging in shapes what we decide to buy. And right. how that might apply to other contexts, we don't really know. You know, We don't know um, if we're buying something online versus buying it in person. Does that change what our preferences are, essentially? If we are buying something in a regular transaction versus buying something that has a um, you know, if you buy this, then a certain amount of money will go to a cause, for instance. How does that change what we do? Um, so we don't know a lot about, we know a lot about if we're in a certain mindset, like if we're in a collective mindset, what will happen, but we don't know a lot about what causes those mindsets to happen. And mm. that was what was so cool to me about this project. Another one that I'm really proud of is we were looking at uh, public donations. So we were looking at the idea that typically in past, in research and in practice, in a lot of nonprofits, uh, people think that encouraging people to give in public is a good thing, that if you're in public, you'll give more because you're trying to manage your impression to other people. And of course, you look good if you give to some sort of cause, right? So of course, you're going to give. And what we found was that wasn't always the case. And what we found was that, well, some people that is the case. And, and overall, that does seem to hold um, people that are more independent, which tends to be North Americans in how they view the self, people that are more independent, that actually kind of backfires. And they're like, hey, if you're asking me in public, you're putting some social pressure on me. And I don't like this situation. So I'm not going to do it just because I don't want you telling me what to do. And so they want to maintain their agency. And the way this came up was at a grocery store. And so you see it all the time now where you're at a grocery store and the clerk is like, hey, do you want to give $2 to uh, Ronald McDonald Children's House, yeah. for instance? And you're like, wow, I'm such a dick for saying no to that. Like, why would yeah. I say no? Obviously, I have the two bucks, but I don't really love that you put me on the spot in front of yeah. all these other people. And so I have this immediate, like I get my backup and I have this little bit of resistance, right? And mm -hmm. so that's where it sort of came up. Like, well, I don't feel good about giving that money. Sometimes I even say yes to it. And then I'm like, hey, I wish you hadn't put me in that spot. Um, and so those sorts of situations. And so, yeah, what we found was that there are certain circumstances, like a person that's more independent in their self-view being asked in public, and they'll actually give less under those circumstances. And that's important for charities to understand because they can do something about it. So they can change the language and how they're asking to change somebody's self-view a little bit and make that less likely to happen. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like for, for example, maybe having uh, somebody go around the store and in the aisle and saying, hey, you know, um, would you like to donate or something when you when you check out? Maybe changing the context up a little bit could, could um, I don't know, change, change their mindset versus when they're literally at the cash there's people there you know people are waiting for them to finish there's there's a sort of hasty um aspect to it you know it's it's so funny when when you i was literally going grocery shopping today and she asked me uh and and, and you just you instantly get uncomfortable you're just instantly uncomfortable because you know you're gonna say no you feel bad you're saying no um you know and and i think it was this little i think it was this little uh tree that was going to this and i was like I think I literally said, I was like, I, I think I'm okay for today, but that tree is like adorable. Like I love that tree. And it's like, 
God, I'm the worst. Like, and and it it really speaks to that that framing that that happens the 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 context of of where you are right now, what's going on, and and the sort of like urgency is like make a decision right now. It's like ah, like I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah. So like, there's a few things that organizations could do. Then they can actually change the change the language. So if we use more collective pronouns, like we, us, our, so, you know, we as an organization are working to help our community use language like that, that shifts your self-view as the the grocery shopper into thinking, you know, I'm part of this and therefore Mm -hmm. you're more likely to say yes. Also, I think that, you know, if I were a grocery store or the charity, I would move more to just putting it on the pin pad. So it's a bit more of a private ask. Um, than being asked out front and having that interaction between two people. Um, mm. So those are a couple of ways that that I would try. I haven't tested that, um, mm. but I would try it. I think, I think it, absolutely. I think there'd be a lot of insights that could be drawn from that. I think, um, you know, diff- different arguments could be made. I mean, well, you lose the human element and it's just a computer. It's easier to say no. There's the, I mean, you could go down a rabbit hole until you actually test it, obviously. But are you... Like, you know, are you starting to notice trends of of consumers being more mindful when they're purchasing Um, or are we kind of just, you know, different age, same sort of behavior? My instinct on that would be it is incredibly um, contingent on segmentation. So the idea that I think there are certain groups that are thinking more, I think certainly the circumstances of COVID have led a number of people to be um, more financially insecure and therefore are going to be thinking more mindfully about the purchase they're making and how they're spending money. I think we certainly see some trends towards more mindful purchasing on the front of sort of sustainability, uh, environmental sustainability products, uh, a lot more social consciousness. And we see that playing out in the way brands are, are coming to the table and recognizing that's what a lot of their consumers want. But my take is still that that is driven by certain segments of the population, certainly, and that there are many for which those just aren't the consideration. I think a lot of the general population are um, status quo. Yeah, especially with the the current climate right now, it's 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 definitely very very different for di- very di- uh, different people, right, in different circumstances. So. Um, you know, I, I'd imagine that there's going to be a ton of findings that that come out <laughs> from 2020, with all the things that consumers get bombarded with, with when they're in a grocery store. All the different, you know, POS, all the different ads and and things, and and people asking you for money. How does a consumer almost protect themselves? How do they stick to that shopping list? Um, do they keep their head down and they don't look at anything? What are what are some of your tips to, you know, really? Just get in, get what you you intended to come for and not let your emotion and impulse sort of seep into uh, your day. I mean, yes, once one one bag of cookies or something here and there is fine. But how, how do you how do you how do you how do you execute that if you want to be less um, emotional with your with your grocery shopping, for example? I would say that lists and planning are the number one thing. So having a list of what you're going in with, you know, we love consistency. As, as human beings. And so even the idea of making a commitment to yourself before you walk into the grocery store, I'm only going to buy what's on my list. This is my you know commitment to myself. You will come out with pretty much only what was on your list. Um, so I think it's, it's about uh, planning, forecasting and planning. 
and understanding, you know, what you're going in there for. And that's an aspect of self-control, you know, and, and of course we all have varying degrees of self-control, but we all have that ability. And so the fact that we just really like being consistent with our plan means we're much more likely to follow through with it. Right. Absolutely. Do you think that uh, different brands, um, maybe let's let's take it out of the CPG realm, like <laughs> just brands in general, do you think they're getting a lot better at at conversion um, with with some of their branding and their tactics? I know we, you, you talked about, um, you know, environmentally, socially, you know, activism and, and things like that. Um, you know, I talked about consumers, you know, some consumers are being, you know, more mindful, some it's mostly status quo. Do, how much more do brands actually have to sell now? Is it is it a harder sell, and generally speaking? So I would say that the vast majority of what we do as consumers is driven by habit. And so I would almost say that it's um, it's relative to what your product goals are. You know, the idea of conversion and taking people away from a different product and and converting them over to yours I think absolutely that's hard because the only way you do that is through getting the attention on a new product and people don't have a lot of capacity to give anything their attention mm-hmm. um, and, and frequently reduced capacity to do that. Whereas if you're introducing a new product um, that's you know a little bit different from something else, I think people are willing to give that their attention a little bit more because that's a little bit more interesting and that's um, a little bit easier to compete against in the sense of, of you're not, you know, you have some sort of advantage in the market. Whereas if, if you don't have much of an advantage in the market and you're one of many, then of course, most of that buying is going to happen by habit, which means there's so little thought process going into those purchases. So I think the, you know, the question of, you know, how much more does a brand have to do is, is so relative to what, what the brand is selling and who they're up against. Fair enough. I, you know, and, and for me, I've, I've seen a lot of different brands really start to, to focus on that uh, community aspect. They're really starting to foster, like you, th- you think of like Patagonia, for example, like they, it, it's like a tribe, you know, it, it, there's, there's, that's like the new sort of way that I see brands marketing is, is creating community and genuine community, not, um, you know, false stuff. Like it's, it's real, real stuff. And I think that that, that kind of just speaks to the evolution of, of, of brands to, get the attention of the consumer. It's, it's, you need to literally build a community for these people to, to really buy in. You know, if, if, if a company doesn't have that now, like, you know, it's only a matter of time. It seems like kind of, kind of, I guess, kind of speak to brand fandom and, and that, that sort of emerging aspect of that are, are people becoming more phonetic about their brands and the brands that they use? Well, I think what we know about that is how incredibly critical authenticity is, as you were describing, you know, that these are real things that Patagonia is doing. And I think there's a lot of brands currently in this period and within the last five years, learning that lesson the hard way and learning a lot about authenticity. Um, Are more people becoming fans? Again, I think it's relative to segmentation, the type of people that we're talking about. and the type of product that we're buying, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you'll look at a product and you say, you know, if we focus on Apple, for instance, sitting here looking at my computer and my phone and my headphones, I'm not 
an Apple fan, but they make my life easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things integrate easier, they go easier. And so it's, it's not fandom that will drive certain types of products for, for a lot of people, but uh, the idea of creating a, a community of fans and whatnot, that, that is going to drive a, a strong core segment. And that's what a company needs. That's what sets Patagonia apart from a lot of other brands that do very similar things. Interesting. Interesting. What would you say to, to somebody listening to this podcast that's that's thinking of starting um, a company? And let's say, I mean, you know, again, like you said, it depends on what the product is or if it's a service. And, you know, just, you know, g- generally speaking, um, let's say it's, it is a product. Let's say it's, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, microphones. Let's say it's new microphones. What's the, I guess, what, one of the better strategies that they could use to to build a, a brand around their microphone, you know, is it, is it, do they have to go to the community route? Do they have to foster community is, is, um, are there different avenues that they could, or different, um, strategies they could use to, to build a brand around their microphones or do they, do they have to sort of connect with their fans? They, it, that's where the money's at, so to speak, is to really connect with the fans, build those connections. Is, is that pretty much the only way? No, I think the I think the only way is in having a solid product and knowing that product really well. So for me, you know, I think about somebody starting a company, my immediate advice advice is to understand all aspects of the company. You know, if if you're a person that's always been solid in engineering and so you've got a great idea and you don't understand, you know, how important marketing is or accounting is or finances or these or logistics um, and operations, having the foundation and all of those things lets you really understand the product and lets you understand your consumer. And that's where you see the the missing gap a lot of times is when people say, well, I'm going to sell this microphone based on the fact that, you know, there's not a lot of microphones in the market. Okay. Well, until you really have that user experience of what it's like to use that mic, you don't have this sort of authentic way of selling it. So you've got to really understand your product from the end user standpoint, I think, in order to authentically sell that product. You know, a brand community will help, absolutely. But at the end of the day, if the product isn't, you know, really solid, um, Mm. that's going to be the failing. Knowing your product very well is the first instance. Treating the customers really well is the second instance. And I think that's what eventually gets you to the beginning of a brand following. Um, I don't think all products are necessarily suited for that direction. I mean, mm-hmm. how passionate are people about a microphone? I, I definitely, I definitely agree. I think you, you build a lot of times you build reputation through having a really good product or service. And, and, and it's like, you know, those guys, those girls, they know what they're doing kind of thing. Right. And, uh, and you can rely on it. And it's, it's funny. You talk about the, the mics. I, I was just thinking about when I, when I got this and, um, you know, every, every single time there's this, this mic, I think it's called the SMB 750 or, or 650. And it's the mic that, Joe Rogan uses it's the you know all the big podcasters use and that's the that's the that's the only mic that's literally the only mic I can think of that has like a a, a fandom or like a clout uh, around it every other mic it's just pure utility like is like you said price point quality reviews 
I don't care about what it looks like. I don't care about anything else. Is it going to get the job done? So I think it. I think context and and the type of product or service definitely um, definitely make a make a difference on that for sure. It's kind of switching gears. I know I touched on it a little bit with with um, what we were talking about earlier, but what are what are some of the trends that you're you're seeing in, in in your research or things that you're you know really interested in that's that's not you know the 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 typical like this just sped everything up and everything's more online now and you know <laughs> mom and pop's dead or whatever you know generalizations that everybody's heard on the news you know what are some sort of i guess not as obvious stuff that's that's sort of emerging that you're like whoa like th- this is not what i would expect I like this question because it caused me to think a lot. And I think where my focus has gone in the last year from a research standpoint and in in personal life is, you know, there's tons of reports out there about how people's spending has shifted. And so the, the categories of spending simply by not being able to go out, the categories of how you're spending and where you're spending are changing. Um, but if you look at what people are missing right now in their lives, it's it's social connection and experiences. and we've sort of long known it's you know research has long established that those are better outlets towards happiness than material objects so you know buying experiences is going to make you happier than buying stuff but society wasn't ready to hear that i don't think yet i think you know we still a lot of people are still about accumulating the stuff and of course there's varying aspects of that but but as a whole you know we like stuff and when you look at um, what we're going to do in the future, I think we're going to see, at least in the short to medium term, we're going to see a lot of consuming in service of those goals. We're going to see a lot of sort of shifting our spending, not necessarily you know between groceries and takeout or things like that. We're going to actually shift spending towards the broader category of, of spending that facilitates social connection with other people and, and experiences more than things. We spent a lot of time with our things in this past year. And I think we realize we're still missing something. The other thing that I've noticed is we pay a lot of attention in consumer behavior and marketing in general to big brands, of course, because they have a lot of money and they're interesting and everybody knows them. So they're kind of easier to research, but certainly as much as our, um, smaller mom and pop shops are disappearing. I think we have been reminded how much we value them in our communities, both rural and urban. I think this was a big wake up call for how much we value those places and how much, you know, as a community, you need those places and, and you need to be supporting them. And to me, that sort of focus on smaller business um, is something that I think is really important going forward. That's yeah, and that's huge. And I think I think that's a, a really big, you know, I feel like society you're just caught up in the hustle bustle and then, you know, kind of take it for granted um that, you know, these these smaller, more community uh stores don't have the resources to just outlast uh something like this. Like I, you know, I saw um I think the the founder of Barstool started this uh small business fund, actually. Um and they've raised mi- like millions and millions of dollars just to help out New York uh small businesses and, and, you know, and I, and I really like that because they're the backbone, you know, they're the backbone of America, the backbone of Canada, the backbone of, of, of most, you know, uh, uh, countries. And, you know, just to kind of touch on what you were saying earlier about brands or companies that foster social connection, that it, like, 
when you said that, I was like, yeah, like Zoom, like Peloton, like, yes, like these guys were at, at the right place at the right time. And that's why they're, they're literally like, I don't know, a hundred X their valuations, right? <laughs> like, like no joke. And, and they crushed it. And I think that's a huge opportunity for, you know, a young aspiring entrepreneur is to think, you know, how could I, how could I make a product or how could I create a service that fosters that connection or, or has that aspect or can fulfill that deprived need that's like we're all starving for it right yeah and i think you know that's where you see um a lot of the innovation in small businesses are the ones that i i'm paying more attention to right now and um a lot of the innovation in how they're pivoting um through covid is just fascinating and and grounded on on ways to continue that social connection yeah yeah absolutely and i think i think it's going to stick because you know we're at least in the Western world, um, very convenience oriented now. Bonnie, I, I really only have one more question for you and it's um, not really related to anything we're talking about, but if you were to say, you know, one piece of advice to, to you know, a young adult or, or somebody who's trying to, you know, um, progress their financial life and, and just kind of, uh, you know, get better, be successful. I mean, what would you say? I'm going to keep it focused on finance and I'm going to say spend in service of good goals. I think that, you know, it's important to learn about credit. It's important to um, understand investing young. I think those are important things, but the idea that you shouldn't, you know, live for the now and, and enjoy uh, is, is crazy to me. And so there's an article called if money doesn't buy you happiness, happiness, you aren't spending it right. And it's by Elizabeth Dunn and her colleagues. And I think it it just gives you um, a number of points that are, yeah, there are ways that that money can, in some ways, in a lot of small regards, um, help you every day to appreciate life and and make the most of it. And and those are things that that will bring happiness. And so I think spending in service of good goals is what I would say. I wouldn't say don't spend. I wouldn't say save. Um, I would say you spend smart. Amazing. Okay. Well, Bonnie, that's all, that's all I have for you. Uh, is, is there somewhere that, uh, anybody can reach out to you to, to ask you any questions if, uh, that, you know, they want to follow up from anything we talked about today? They sure can. They can find me at Western. So if you just Google Western and Bonnie Simpson, you'll see me pop up. Amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking all things consumer behavior and, and insights and COVID insights and everything. So, so uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Have a great night. So there you have it, my friends. Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on again. Such an interesting and awesome conversation. Guys, I hope you really got something out of this episode. I feel like I did, uh, as always. Quick reminder, let's get our wealth building journey started. Wealth Simple Trade, Wealth Simple Invest. Check out the show notes below to get started. But that is all I have for you guys on this Wednesday. I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. We'll see you in the next one. But for now, I'm out this mother. Peace.